This is Dan Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. We have plenty of listeners in North America, but we also have plenty of listeners in Europe. And interestingly, pound for pound, our European visitors are more likely to purchase our Emerge reports even than North American readers. And we think it's because they prefer a reliance on best practices. They prefer to know what the rest of the world is up to before they leap into this new world of artificial intelligence. And that's certainly not just my opinion. It's the opinion of many of the AI experts in the EU who I've been fortunate enough to interview. One of them is our guest this week. Maxim Kalilov is a PhD in computer science from the University of Catalonia, who was previously the product owner of data science at Booking.com, the online giant, the director of applied artificial intelligence at Unbabel at the time of this interview. And since this interview, he's moved on to be the head of R&D at Glovo, which is a unicorn company based in Spain, one of Spain's big tech, arguably their, their most famous tech unicorn. Uh, so Maxime is established in the field of artificial intelligence and in applying it in a business context. And he speaks to us this week about the difference with applying artificial intelligence and deploying artificial intelligence within European companies. Some of the same concerns around data that some of you might have heard of, but also some unique considerations around culture. Some of Maxime's ideas for moving through and around some of these cultural issues and some of the data concerns apply just as well anywhere in the world, but it's also a pretty interesting and unique take on how AI is being applied in the EU. So if your business does business in the EU, or if you're just working through cultural elements and some of the hubbub around making AI adoption work in the enterprise, you should be able to get something out of this episode. Maxime has certainly seen AI put to good use. Um, and some pretty darn exciting companies, and I think he brings a good perspective to this episode as well. If you're just getting started with your AI journey, then check out our Beginning with AI report. This is three critical insights for non-technical professionals. Maxime is obviously someone who can write the code. Most of my listeners are folks with more of a business background who still want to be able to lead AI projects, identify the right AI opportunities, and move forward with AI adoption, even if they're not the one writing the code. And that's what this guide is about. So again, you can download our free PDF brief called Beginning with AI, Three Key Insights for Non-Technical Professionals at emerj.com slash beg1. That's beg like beginning, beg, and then the number one. So check out that URL to download that PDF brief and otherwise enjoy this episode with Maxim. He was with Unbabble at the time of this interview. He's now with Globo. Here we are. Let's roll right in. So Maxim, we'll start off with just getting your perspective on what maybe some of the unique challenges are with applying AI, kind of the AI business ecosystem in Europe. How do you like to sum it up? Okay. I think it's a very interesting question. Well, I think that first of all, we need to define what is Europe, right? So Europe is not a single country like US. Right? There are a lot of cultural differences, a lot of um, a lot of uh, different uh, regulators in this um, in, in Europe, uh, and um, there are good good and bad, bad things about it. So if we talk about like business practices, let's say, I think uh, to a certain extent they are defined by the cultural differences between countries. Doing business in Germany and doing business in Spain. It's a very different thing, as you may imagine, right? And it's also very different from US. If, for example, you have an interesting idea related to machine learning or generally like any interesting idea, and you try to pitch it to potential investors in, um, in US, 
I mean, if you convince them, they probably will be happy to throw some money uh, and some energy and some human resources um, into the implementation of this idea. Probably you will be fine for some time before it's uh, the, the, the time to check it up uh, will come. In Germany, for example, the situation is different. I mean, I'm speaking from my experience. I'm, I'm not saying that I have like a full perspective, but <laughs> yeah. you need to be around for a while before people get uh, convinced that uh, you are here to stay. You see, so the difference is actually the speed of work might be different. But on the other hand, if you convince Germans, for example, that um, your idea is good and that you're here to stay for a while, probably they will support you much longer and they will trust you much more than, uh, let's say, different and people in different markets. South of Europe, where I am right now, I am in Lisbon now, in Portugal, it's also it's also pretty different. Uh, they rely quite a lot on the governmental support. Also, um, let's say from the business perspective, hiring, firing people is also like very different than let's say in the, in the, in the north of Europe, right? So I, I would say that the, this is the main feature that uh, um, Europe has. It's like very diverse. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive into that. And, and you know, you could argue that there's some diversity in the States, you know, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, or, or like, you know, Mississippi, you know, is a little bit different than Boston or San Francisco, but it's clearly not as culturally and language wise diverse and legally diverse as mm -hmm. Europe, which is much broader for sure. So I'm going to clarify a few things. First, you mentioned, you know, they want to make sure you're around for longer. Does that mean you have to kind of, in order to raise money in Berlin, you have to have kind of lived there for a while. You have to have a lot of friends there. You have to sort of speak at a bunch of events for a little while before the investors are going to want to throw money at you. Or what did you mean by be there for longer? Like, what did you imply there? Yes, pretty much everything that you said, right? So people want to see your face at the biggest events for a couple of years. Uh, when you come, you talk to people, you speak at this, you're at the stage, right? So you show your product, you show your ideas. At the same time, they also see um, you to be present online, right? So you need to be present on uh, LinkedIn, for example. Um, in Germany, it's not LinkedIn, it's, a, it's, an, it's another platform that they're mostly using. So these sort of things, right? I mean, it's, uh, the, you basically need to demonstrate that you have enough resources and persistence to convince them, actually, that you are not going to disappear tomorrow. That's interesting. What, what, I wonder what that fear is. I mean, disappear tomorrow. I guess, do a lot of people leave Berlin when they don't raise money and they go to Paris and then they leave Paris so they don't raise money? Like, what, what's the fear of flight, so to speak? Because I know people leave San Francisco all the time. People leave New York all the time. What is this fear of flight? Well, um, actually, primarily, I th uh, what I referred to was slightly different, right? I mean, you are not going to like probably move somewhere else, but you need to demonstrate to prove to the people that you have enough resources, that you have enough, uh, let's say, time also, and enough uh, belief in your own idea. Pretty much persistent ah, on that. Okay, right? okay, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, actually, what you said is also interesting <laughs> because in Europe, um, uh, raising money in, uh, let's say, the Netherlands, in Spain and in France, can be very different, right? So if your goal, for example, is to raise initial money for your startup, for example, then probably you will follow where the supply is. Mm -hmm. And it also changes, changes pretty much. I mean, some time ago, for example, Barcelona was known as like a big hub for accelerators and, and um, like there was quite a lot of like, governmental support to new businesses. These days, uh, I would say it's uh, shifted to other countries to a certain extent. Uh, Berlin was always like one of the main hubs for that. And people, I would say, that follow it to a certain extent because moving within Europe, it's easy. 
These days, I would say it's much easier to live in any European country if you speak like I don't know, one, two languages. It's not the same as it was like 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So language-wise, I mean, it became like more transparent and more friendly. Uh, so yeah, I think it also plays a role. So, okay. Interesting. So both of those, I guess, maybe are different dynamics. There's also just generally what you're referring to is the diversity writ large. Clearly, you know, a company that a Portuguese company that builds a natural language processing solution for, you know, contracts and documents and financial services, uh, you know, they'll need to, they can't just sell to anybody in France unless I suppose they have a sales force and kind of tech teams that can speak that language. Is there a little bit of, I guess, friction in terms of the permeation of these technologies? So innovation in France, Germany, Netherlands, etc. Is there a little bit of friction in terms of these of immediately permeating all the countries around them? Because it takes a little while for us to build up the level of trust and the level of you know employees with different language skills to then enter these different markets. Does that kind of make the spread a bit slower? How does that affect the dynamic, I guess, good or bad in your opinion? Yes, I think it all comes to the kind of old European values, right? So social security is, for example, one of them. And it makes, uh, uh, sorry, it's probably not the perfect example, but if you uh, hire someone and you realize that actually it's not really a good fit for your company, right? And um, after the probation period, it's super difficult in many countries to um, basically fire someone, right? So it's a whole process. You lose a lot of uh, time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources on that. While in U.S., well, in U.S. situation is very different, right? You, also, yeah, it comes sure to, is. Also, it comes to the availability of resources to a certain extent. I mean, generally, hiring in Europe these days, especially when it comes to, let's say, high-tech high tech professions, uh, it's more difficult than in U.S., Salary difference, uh, where the talent is, a lot of other factors. Uh, one of them is, for example, yeah, I'm working in the language technology market. So I would say that these days, uh, Europe is definitely losing the battle to US and to Asia in this field. And uh, basically, the big businesses are mostly like not in Europe, right? So hiring someone good, uh, it's much more difficult if you have even, even like great idea, but uh, people typically like, work for big companies uh, for um, uh, doing interesting stuff. And it's, and it's happening not in Europe, it's happening in the US most of the days. So I think it all like plays a role. So, and I think that the main characteristic here is agility. I think that the agility of how the business, how people do business, right? And US is just faster. Yeah, I, I guess, well, I, I hate to be, you know, we're clearly bringing up a lot of challenges first. And maybe we can pivot over and talk a little bit about Potential strengths, potential advantages. Maybe they're not all strengths necessarily over the the U.S., but they are just relative strengths for Europe writ large. You know, when you think about what Europe has going for it in terms of not only artificial intelligence innovation, but also artificial intelligence adoption and opportunity. I mean, you know, we're going to see GDP growth. Hopefully, we're going to see you know big impact. What are the factors that are sort of good things for for Europe when it comes to AI adoption and innovation? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a big market. And, uh, sure is. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that's why, actually, if you have an interesting idea, most probably uh, you will find a market for that, right? So this is one. I mean, initially, the opportunities in Europe, let's say, are much um, richer than in many other regions in the world. Um, on the other hand, uh, diversity, uh, while it's uh, on one hand 
it might be hurting Europe a little bit because of all the things that we already discussed, but it, it can also serve as a strength, right? Because of the availability of different potential talents, uh, because of um, the availability of different opinions, and uh, primarily for for the for the better better solutions you might find. So that's I would say is a main factor. Uh, huh. The diversity that Europe has, yeah. Yeah, well, let, let's let's I guess make that tangible. So you know the downsides of diversity to some degree. Again, pretty clear. You know, language barriers, pretty big deal. Different legal systems, pretty big deal. Different norms, kind of city by city or or what have you. Not having a big unified slush fund for innovation. You know, ecosystem in, in the same VC sense. Potential downsides, but diversity. Does that come in the form of? Different universities with different kinds of focus? Does that come in the form of different geo regions with different sorts of strengths? Like, I imagine a lot of different ways you could have meant that. What do you mean? Yes, exactly that. So, um, um, right now, actually, I manage a team. It's not a big team, it's like 10 people, but we, uh, they're people of uh, five nationalities, right? And um, it means that actually they speak different languages uh, as mother tongue, of course. Uh, it means that actually they attended different universities, they got slightly different education, they raised in different societies. And when it comes to brainstorming, it comes to development of a solution. In many cases, people surprise each other. Simply, they think about um, potential solutions or potential directions you would never think of yourself, right? And in the end, uh, I mean, I believe that actually we are coming up with uh, much better decisions than we would come up with if we were like 10 people studied at the same university coming from the same country, just because of that, because of diversity of points of view. Got it. Okay. I think, again, just sort of the general Western idea of kind of diversity good. You know, obviously in Europe, you'll, you'll have a ton of that because you'll have much vaster reaches of cultural diversity potentially within the same the same team as you just sort of talked about are there any potential advantages in other words in your opinion are there industries where maybe europe has an edge over some of the rest of the world or another maybe opportunity here would be on education are there any areas where you think maybe europe has the education edge and everybody likes talking about the you know the the MITs and the Stanfords, but you know, clearly Europe has some of the finest you know, educational institutions in the world and, and many of the biggest companies in the world too. What are maybe some strengths there if you know of any? Well, yes. What I wanted to mention actually before we get to it, it's also uh, the governmental support, right? So let's say in Europe, there are two layers. Look, first one is a national layer. So many countries, like all the countries in Europe, I believe they have their own national programs to support businesses. Uh, which helps, which helps especially for like uh, new startups and new companies. Second one is there are like a lot of like a lot, European Commission invests quite a lot into strategic uh, initiatives at the European level, right? So, and uh, um, I don't know exactly, I don't have the numbers on top of my head, but uh, Europe, Europe spends like I think hundreds of millions like every year just supporting different um, different industries in different segments. So this is one. A second one is, yes, exactly, education. So there is such a thing as an Erasmus um, program in Europe. probably heard about it. It's basically um, a lot of students from any European universities. They have uh, um, enough support, uh, like a lot of opportunities to go and study abroad, right, within Europe, and sometimes outside Europe as well. And then they coming back home and then bringing all the knowledge on the cultural uh, perspective that they got during their stay abroad, right? And it's like, like it's not happening with best students only. Uh, it's not a reward. It's a pretty much common practice in Europe. 
So it also brings like uh, a lot of new ideas, a lot of uh, openness to the European community. So, and apart from that also, I would say the, there are a lot of universities in Europe and the average level of universities is pretty high, right? So uh, probably we don't have like uh, universities, like uh, a lot of universities, like at the MIT or Stanford level in Europe, but the average level is uh, yeah pretty high, I would say, especially technical ones. Yeah, and, and I guess I'm going to try to circle it back and as we sort of bring the interview home. Think about how business leaders in Europe can take into account these strengths and weaknesses, I guess, and, and uh, shuttle themselves towards a better AI future for their companies. A lot of the listeners either are, are running businesses in Europe or maybe running a division in Europe or thinking about expanding into Europe. And now I'm thinking about what are the practical considerations here. So you've talked a bit about the strengths and the weaknesses. You know, I've, I've had some folks in the past – mention things like, okay, for European companies, we might want to be a little bit less eager to staff up very quickly for a particular AI pilot project, because if it doesn't work out, obviously hiring is a much bigger deal, because firing is a much bigger deal. So that might be a concern mm -hmm. for, for companies. Also, some people have said we might want to start with much lower risk projects within Europe, or we might want to start with projects that have nothing to do with customer data. So we don't have to mess with GDPR. We can experiment with and develop our skills without crisscrossing on customer data at all. And that, that might be the right Petri dish for most enterprises in Europe. These are just things I've heard, but I'd really love your thoughts. How is what we've said today, maybe go into account for how a business leader might want to get started with AI and have a chance of succeeding in Europe? Yeah. Well, definitely everything that you've just mentioned plays an important role. GDPR uh, was and is like a very big thing in Europe and not just in Europe, right? I mean, you probably know that according to the GDPR regulation, so anyone, any company dealing with European customers should be compliant. So even if you're in the US, but you have customers in Europe, you should be taking it into consideration. And yes, I mean, from the infrastructural and uh, data management point of view, GDPR was a very big change last year. And still, like many people, many companies are trying to be compliant with it and basically building the last pieces of infrastructure for that. So hiring, firing, yeah, I mean, we talked about it definitely. This is very different. And it's in some countries, it's easier in, uh, in Europe. In other countries, it's more difficult, but it's definitely generally a concern, right? Regulation, I mean, you need to be aware of local local regulation as well, right? So, for example, tax regulation is different in different countries. Somewhere it's more advantage, advantages, uh, somewhere it's uh, less advantages, but there may be other advantages like availability of governmental support, for example. And I think it also adds a little bit of complexity to running the business. But on the other hand, it also makes you to learn new stuff faster, right? So let's take an example of the company where I used to work before. It's called Booking.com. Probably you heard about it. It's yep, also yep. in Europe. So it's a global company, but it started in the Netherlands. It started in one of the smallest countries in Europe, right? And pretty much like after three, four months, you are aware of the market and you probably start thinking about like some, something else, something bigger, right? So then you probably go to Germany, you go to France, uh, you go to the UK. And uh, by doing that, you also, you learn a lot um, about running businesses, business in, uh, um, in other markets, right? And uh, if, for example, you start in the US, like Expedia did, which, was, which is the main booking.com competitor, 
you have like enough work maybe for I don't know five ten years. Oh yeah, before for sure. You, for yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. US is a huge market, right? Yeah, and probably you will learn quite a lot about the US market, about how to deal with local regulation, with uh, with the English language primarily, maybe Spanish language as well, right? But in the same time, and uh, in these ten years, if you started in Europe, you already would be dealing with twenty different languages. Right? You will be uh, dealing with 20 different markets and, yeah. and uh, different regulations. So I think that's uh, something that makes a difference as well. Just maybe to close out, when you think about what Booking.com had to do, you know, in terms of adopting that quickly, having to sort of expand across borders, again, Booking.com would never be anywhere close to where it is if they stayed in the Netherlands exclusively, of course. What did that learning imply? You say, well, it makes you learn new things. I could imagine somebody listening in saying, well, yeah, they got to learn new annoying things, like all these new legal things, all these new hiring laws, and all these different language considerations, and it's it's all this kind of frictiony stuff. But you know, you kind of said it in a way that really framed it as a strength. What do you see that strength as? I guess just to sink that point home for the audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, like all these uh, uh, things that uh, you mentioned are, are important and it's like critical to know them if you want to run a business. Of course. But it comes to sales, right? I mean, in, in the end of the day, if you don't sell, I mean, all this knowledge would be totally useless. And what you primarily uh, learn is actually how to sell to, uh, in, the, in this case, B2C market. It's primarily goes to the channels on how people travel, how people buy products, right? It's not about here, but let's to bring you an example. So in Brazil, for example, for many years, one of the best advertisement channels was blogging. So people basically rely much more on uh, on maybe like a handful of uh, like famous travel bloggers. And it helps to form their opinion, right? In other countries, like in Germany, for example, it's not the case anymore. It's not, uh, not anymore. It's not the mm. case at all. Okay. So these things you need to learn in a hard way, right? You cannot go online and uh, read about it. So yeah, that's, that's, I think, the main learning you get. Cool. Okay. Interesting. I, I'm glad we were able to kind of flesh that point out before we wrap up. Maxime, I'm aware of where we are on time, but I'm glad that you were able to share your ideas with us here on AI and industry. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Big thanks to Maxime for being able to join us for the interview. And thank you to you for listening all the way through. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow us on social. You can find Emerge at at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or Facebook. And from there, you can stay abreast of all of our latest interviews, both on this podcast and our other podcast called AI and Financial Services, as well as all of our latest articles and use cases. So at EMERJ on Twitter or just Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or on Facebook. So stay in touch, stay connected on social, and otherwise stay tuned because I'll be catching you here next Tuesday for our next episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thanks again. 